This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Joanne Stone, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist out of Mount Sinai. I wanted to connect with her to talk about preventable conditions during pregnancy. And what we do is talk about holistic themes as well as some specific conditions, and it's all about being solution-oriented. And I can assure you that you will not walk away from this episode paranoid, worrying about everything that could go wrong. It's very, very specific about what are the things you should be concerned about and how you can prevent different things from happening. And do follow me on Instagram or go to my website, fempower-health.com, and Instagram is fempowerhealth. It turns out that all these algorithms keep changing, and they have now reduced the amount of information I'm able to put into my show notes. And so on Instagram and on my website, you'll see all the links that I would normally have in my show notes so you can access products and resources and other helpful information to support you on your health journey. And without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Stone. So a maternal fetal medicine specialist is somebody that specializes in the care of high-risk pregnancies. So um, it's somebody that's done typically in the United States, a four-year residency in obstetrics and gynecology, and then spends another three years doing a fellowship in in, um, maternal fetal medicine. And it's like a, a whole range of things. So we take care of women who have underlying medical disorders, so maybe underlying coronary artery, artery disease or long-standing diabetes or um, uh, lupus, you know, something like that. Or it can be that they're taking care of fetuses that have problems. So complicated twin pregnancies that develop, you know, various uh, conditions. Um, we do a lot of also, depending on, you know, depending on where you train, do a lot of prenatal diagnosis procedures. So ultrasounds, procedures to diagnose um, genetic abnormalities like a chorionic fill sampling or amniocentesis, fetal therapies that we can do as well. So there are certain um, patients at risk for fetal anemia where we can actually identify that the fetus is anemic and go in and, and do an in utero blood transfusion. And, oh, and, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a huge gamut of, you know, medical, maternal medical conditions, fetal conditions, and then, you know, things that might develop during pregnancy. I think it might help to start before we dive into maybe some of the conditions and explaining some of the watchouts. Would you say that there's an overall theme that once a woman is carrying a child, regardless of some of these preventable conditions, do you see themes of what can be done by the healthcare system, the patient, the doctor, all of it, (laughs) and you're the expert here, you tell us, to just really improve the experience and minimize the odds of something that can be fairly preventable or caught early to really avoid those. And then we can dive into each of those and some of the watch outs specific to those conditions. Look, the majority of pregnancies tend to be uncomplicated, but there's also that 
nat that assumption that pregnancy is always going to, oh, it's, it's so natural. It's, you know, nothing can ever go wrong. So I think women should understand that complications can arise during pregnancy, but without being, you know, scared, too scared about it. Um, one of the things that um, some women do, and it's, uh, you know, it's more common in patients who have had a, you know, some kind of poor pregnancy outcome or have maternal medical conditions where they'll before pregnancy meet with a maternal and fetal medicine specialist and set up a consultation. And I think it's so important and it's really a great idea for anybody. So we can do things. So, you know, we know that there is, and I know I don't want to go into the details too, but just as a little example, obesity is, you know, becoming an epidemic in the United States, right? So there are things that just meeting and understanding what the you know, what the risks are of obesity during pregnancy and what you can do so you can prepare for it. So perhaps, you know, lose it, weight loss program and exercise and all of that so you can get yourself into the best possible shape before you get pregnant. So am I hearing you say that once someone finds out when they're pregnant, ideally, maybe just even one visit with an MFM or just well, certain types of cases? Because I, I assume your capacity, I know even trying to get in to see you as my doctor was yeah. was um, hard. So I can imagine capacity. So like realistically, is there like maybe a priority list of women who should consider at least that one consult? Best to do before you conceive, right? So that you can address issues beforehand. So most people have an OBGYN that they see, that they care for, Um not always. And, and actually, you know, our system, our Medicaid system is really difficult because people that are uninsured don't necessarily have that access. It's only once they become pregnant that they get Medicaid, you know? So it's, there's a disparity already in, in, in the care between those insured and uninsured um, populations. But if you have an OBGYN or a medical doctor, maybe that knows that you you know, have an underlying condition, they can say, look, you should meet with the maternal fetal medicine specialist beforehand. Or if it's somebody that just talks to their OB and they say, you know, you really don't have any issues. You don't really need to meet with somebody. I think that's totally reasonable as well. Okay. Thank you for walking us through that. Yes. The disparities in healthcare, like I could probably do a million episodes on that. And I just always want to acknowledge that it is there and I don't want to minimize the challenges those in disparate populations face. And admittedly, I'm struggling to figure out because I always want this podcast to be solution oriented. And to me, that's like an entirely separate entity. So I always at least like to acknowledge it and just know that if I could figure out a way to solve for it or make an impact, I will. But unfortunately, we can't do that in a short podcast. So I just want to at least put that out there. So now let's talk about some of these conditions. So you sent me an email with some of them. So we'll just go one by one. So one is preterm labor. So let's talk about that. You know, preterm labor can be due to a whole lot of different causes, right? Anything from a multiple gestation to a genetic predisposition to a medically indicated preterm birth or spontaneous preterm birth that might result from infection, inflammation, lots of different things. One of the highest risk groups for, um, for spontaneous preterm birth is somebody that has a history of a spontaneous preterm birth. So if you went into labor at 32 weeks or 34 weeks in a prior pregnancy, you're at risk for another preterm birth again. And it can be the same gestational age, it could be even earlier. 
And we know that um, we do have th a therapy, progesterone, that can help prevent that um, preterm birth. Now, it doesn't prevent all of it, but it can greatly reduce the chance of preterm birth happening again. Really? Mm-hmm. It's progesterone is that ho little hormone that could, the more I am learning about progesterone. Oh my goodness. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, there's different formulations, um, of progesterone. There's injection. That's was one of the first things published back in 2003 that showed, um, in the United States population, a, a tremendous reduction in uh, recurrent preterm birth that received authorization from the FDA, but they had to repeat, they had to redo the study as part of FDA's regulations. It was very hard to redo the study in the United States because here you had a therapy that was successful. So it was done um, mainly outside the US in a very different patient population. The first study had, I don't remember exactly, it was somewhere over 50% rate of recurrent preterm birth in the placebo group and you know maybe 35% or so in the progesterone group. In this new study, it was like 10 and 11%. Didn't show a difference. Very different, low, much lower rate of preterm birth, very different patient population. And the FDA has not come out with whether or not they're going to take it off the market or not. But there was a recent meta-analysis that was published that looked at both vaginal progesterone and IM progesterone, both, you know, showing pretty much a benefit and vaginal certainly might even be better than the injection, but either way, either one is, is, is worthwhile. And it's not over the counter, right? Cause that's one of the things I, I do want to caution with folks is if they listen to this podcast, don't go to CVS and Walgreens and start <laughs> buying <no>. progesterone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's another another utility of progesterone that's been found effective, and and it's in combination with an ultrasound that measures the cervical length, usually at the routine anatomy scan. So usually, pregnant individuals get a ultrasound for anatomy at 20 weeks. So if you do a vaginal ultrasound and measure the cervical length, a shortened cervix is a predictor of a preterm birth. And if you give vaginal progesterone for a shortened cervix, you can reduce that rate of, of preterm birth. Interesting. Now the shortened cervix, just to clarify, because I know that if you have, and I'm not an expert on all of this, so I don't know if it's just related to HPV or others, but sometimes they have to freeze the tip of your cervix off. Does that create a shortened cervix? Or are you talking about people who potentially are born with one? Like what causes that shortened cervix? It's a good question. So yes, there are, you know, more infrequently causes that are due to some kind of surgery in the cervix, not the freezing so much, but something called a leap or a cone biopsy where they're removing some of the cervical tissue. The chances of a shortened cervix from that are still not very high, but um, it can be caused. And other ones, we don't know, you know, maybe there's some kind of natural process that's already starting to occur inflammation that's leading to a shortened cervix, we don't always know. Um, but we do, it's a, it's a finding on a routine exam that you find the shortened cervix and then treating with progesterone can help to decrease the, the um, occurrence of spontaneous preterm birth. And then there's another procedure that can be done that also can be useful. And it's very much, it's called a uh, cerclage, which is a stitch that's placed into the cervix to help keep it closed. There's very specific indications for it. So there's three different indications, something called a history indicated cerclage. So somebody that had 
uh, evidence of um, multiple second trimester miscarriages in those patients that had a prior preterm birth. So they delivered, let's say at 30 weeks, they go for that 20 week ultrasound and their cervix is short. That's a reason to put that in. Um, or if on, on, on physical exam, you see a dilated cervix at around that same time period, you know, 18 to 22, 23 weeks for whatever reason, and there's no evidence of infection, a cerclage can help to, um, to prolong that pregnancy as well. Specific indications, but again, another thing that's very important because preterm birth is so important. It's, you yep. know, one of the leading causes of perinatal morbidity and mortality. No, absolutely. And then, you know, one question that occurred to me, as you said, you know, those, those who've already had preterm labor are at high risk of having it again. So my question would be, how do you know with the first kid, if you can have it and what can you do to be proactive? <laughs> I mean, anything? Well, so, so good question. Um, so th there was one study that was published about a year ago, I think it was a multi-center international study that actually showed that a, a baby aspirin can help reduce the rate of preterm birth. I mean, it wasn't a huge reduction, but it was a reduction for anybody. So a baby aspirin, I think, you know, we say, when is it going to be part of a prenatal vitamin? You know, almost everybody's going to be on a baby aspirin, but that's, that is one thing. I think uh, there are other things as well. And this is why, you know, sort of, either early appointment with your OB or a preconceptional visit, you know, can, can change, you know, certain uh, lifestyle, right? So people who are obese are at a higher risk. If you smoke, you're at a higher risk. Illicit drug use puts you at a higher risk for preterm birth. So modifi modifying some lifestyle changes to be as healthy as possible during pregnancy is, is also something that an individual can do say I want to be in the best shape possible. You know, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna lose that weight. I'm gonna eat healthy. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to not drink alcohol. I'm gonna, you know, do all these things that will help reduce the chance of a premature delivery. Okay, thank you for that. Now, the next on the list was cervical insufficiency. Did you cover that with the shortened cervix or is yeah. there other things related to the cervix? Because I know the cervix is very important and plays a lot of roles. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, you know, if you've had maybe second trimester loss and sometimes it's really unclear, you know, like what caused it? Like I have a patient who had first pregnancy full-term delivery, very rapid labor for a first pregnancy. I didn't take care of her then. Then had a 16-week uh, loss. She saw, she actually had an ultrasound the day before and um, they didn't do a vaginal ultrasound, but took a picture of what they thought was the cervix abdominally and it looked okay. And the next day she presented with some spotting and pressure and ruptured membranes and delivered really rapidly. Very unusual, right? To have a full-term delivery and then this happened. So is it was it really cervical insufficiency, so unclear. So then I went, I looked at the picture of the ultrasound that was done the day before. And I thought, and it was no fault of the person that did it. I think the bladder was super full. Just knowing what, I think I had the benefit of knowing what happened. I could see, I think this wasn't the cervix that they're measuring. That was vagina. There was already what we call funneling 
of the servers, I think, was already starting to open. And they, they just didn't pick it up because it it was hard to know that without having my the, the, the knowledge of what happened to her. So we talked about either following with cervical lanes or putting a cerclage in. And we decided to put this cerclage in for cervical insufficiency. And, and we did that. And actually at the time of the cerclage done around 12, 13 weeks, her cervix looked a little bit dilated already. So it's, a, it's again, something to have advocate for say, listen, this happened to me. Is this something that would be useful or not? Should I get, you know, have that conversation. Sometimes things aren't always so clear. They're not always so black and white, but, um, but, but talking to a specialist can be helpful. Now, would you recommend that the average person who's pregnant just make sure that it's measured just to, and looked at more frequently or at certain time points and just request it to be proactive? I believe, and it's, you know, there's some controversy around there, but I do believe in universal uh, transvaginal ultrasound screening at the time of the routine 20-week scan for the otherwise uncomplicated patient. You know, some people, you know, not all societies um, make that recommendation. Some say, well, if it looks short on the abdominal, then vaginal. There are programs, you have to know how to measure that cervix as well. So there's actually certification that people who do ultrasound need to do just so that they are accurately measuring that cervical lane. So that's very important as well. Got it. So then, so if I were to be a proactive patient at my 20 week scan, I might request it. And then I would verify is the person certified and not all insurance, not all insurance is covered either. Are you kidding me? Yeah, this is, yeah. I have lots of things I'm tracking on this podcast. (laughs) Um, so they would have to pay separately for that? They have to pay separately, or if the center does it, they want to write it off, you know, they just do it and write it off, you know. Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right. Sorry, ladies. I'm really trying to be solution-oriented here, but there's a reality we have to face. Okay. Recurrent miscarriage. This is, wow. Um, I've had many conversations about this one. There's a lot of great innovation that's happening in this space. You know, I'd love to get your comments on recurrent miscarriage and and what people need to be aware of from the perspective you have with these patients. Yeah. So I think this is a, I think this fits into the idea that we were talking about in terms of advocate, like being educated and advocating. So, you know, recurrent miscarriage is defined as two spontaneous miscarriages um, and two or more. Um, It used to be three or more, but now it's two or more. Um, So, if a patient has a first miscarriage, let's say, you know, the majority of miscarriages, majority of early miscarriages, first trimester are due to chromosomal abnormalities or potentially structural defects. So it's almost like nature's way of not continuing with an abnormal pregnancy. So I think that patients who have even the first miscarriage, if they end up like they go in for their eight week ultrasound and there's no heartbeat and they end up needing to have a DNC, then I, I, I recommend very strongly they ask their doctor to send off the tissue for genetic testing. Because if, they, if you don't do that, and a lot of people don't have that done, if you have another miscarriage, you don't know, is that first one genetically abnormal? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's really important. Or are, there, are you going to have three miscarriages and they're all chromosomally normal and you're going down a totally another pathway to try to figure out why are they having these miscarriages? So if possible on the 
very first miscarriage, if women can ask for genetic testing to be done, it's very helpful. It's a little bit hard now um, because, I mean, it's good. We have the ability to, if you have that diagnosis, let's say at six weeks and there's no heartbeat and you can take a pill to empty the uterus, it's a lot easier than going in for surgery. You know, trying to collect that tissue can be a little bit more difficult and challenging, but if you do collect that tissue or if you are having a DNC, if there's some way of getting genetic testing on that, on that tissue, it's a really good idea, even the first miscarriage. Okay. Now, I don't want to open a whole can of worms about, um, you know, the genetic testing, because there's so many things that it could be, but just thematically, so we don't have to go through every single potential thing that you can find um, with the genetic testing. So you were saying there's two different paths. So let's assume there was um, something through genetic testing that would be uncovered versus not, you know, at a very high level, what so people can understand like what happens next. I'm like seeing a little tree, like a decision tree, it's this or this. Um, and I'm sure it's not so black and white always, but what, what are those different paths then? So, I mean, so again, you think about, well, what's the most common thing? So genetic abnormalities, sometimes people who have multiple couples that have multiple miscarriages, we check their chromosomes because they may carry like what's called a balanced translocation where they can pass on to the, to the fetus, an unbalanced um, translocation of genetic material that leads to miscarriage. So that's another thing, checking the, the, the couple's chromosomes themselves. Then there's looking for other causes, like is there, does the um, woman have thyroid disease? Like are they hypothyroid or hyper that can lead to miscarriage? Are they, do they have undiagnosed diabetes? That can, that can lead to miscarriage as well. Um, there's something that's more associated with miscarriages at 10 weeks or later called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, where they have certain antibodies that cause increased risk for clotting that can lead to miscarriages. Sometimes it can be due to underlying infection. Um, so there are ways that, or, or uterine abnormalities. That's a little bit more common for later miscarriages, but there are different things that, you know, you have to like, in the workup, check the box off to see, can I identify a cause and then know how to treat it. So one of the things that I'm becoming aware of is, you know, again, having been in industry my whole career, I totally get that there's generalists and specialists for different areas, but I've become really fascinated in the um, field of obstetrics, how many subspecialties there are. And so because I'm realizing that, that nuance and the depth that these specialists have to study, I'd be curious, would you say that an OBGYN that you would visit every year, would they be able to, if you have this miscarriage, you know, effectively identify these potential underlying issues? Or would you recommend that again, you know, disparate populations, it may be more difficult, but in an ideal world, let's say, um, we're in utopia, you can access any doctor you want. Would you recommend that if you have a miscarriage, they need to see some kind of a specialist? And if so, what kind? For a lot of, and we call them general generalists, general OBGYNs who've done a full residency, but haven't done any extra training after that. Many of them can handle that workup for miscarriage. You know, it becomes more of a issue of, you know, when you don't find anything, you don't know what to do, what's the next steps that you might send that patient, refer that patient out for um, another opinion about what to do. 
There's a little bit of a crossover between maternal fetal medicine specialists and a reproductive endocrinologist, the um, REI people who do the fertility work. Both of us often deal with patients with recurrent miscarriage. So it may be in some places the MFM that does it and then other places the infertility specialists that do it, a bit of a crossover. Okay. There are some people that have developed a real interest in um, in recurrent pregnancy loss that they may not be either one, MFM or REI, but they've done a lot of research in that area and might be somebody else to see. And I actually interviewed, I don't know if you know, Dr. Laura Shaheen out in California. She wrote a book about um, miscarriage and it was really interesting. It was, what I liked about what she did is it was very um, easy to read and just outlined all the different aspects of it. And what I liked is she talked about how this is where the research is. This is where doctors agree. This is where they disagree. And she said, even as I published this book, it's going to be different when you read this book again. And so hopefully she'll keep, you know, updating it, but it's called Not Broken. And I also interviewed her on the podcast. So if you ever have patients who are struggling, you might want to recommend that book because it's just a very nice I mean, I'm sure by the time they get to you, um, you're doing all the workups, but just in case people wanted to have the education, it's not overwhelming or intimidating. It's just, it's really well done. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. All right. So the next is preeclampsia. So I'm really interested in this one because um, as you mentioned with uh, reproductive endocrinology and MFMs, there's, you know, some overlap. And I was actually working with Dr. Braverman, um, who obviously passed away, which very sad. It'll be two years at the end of this month since he died. And I was at risk for preeclampsia. So I'm very, I'd love to get your thoughts about how people can be aware of it, what they can do to be proactive. Because even in my situation, I know there was disagreement between um, you and Dr. Braverman on the medications I should be on. And so that was really fascinating. And I'm not trying to say that like, try to get into a battle of it, but just to show like how hard these nuances are in trying to figure out what to do for patients. And so I, I'm, I'm extremely interested in this topic since I had a, a personal experience with it as well. Yeah. Well, preeclampsia is, you know, really one of the most fascinating diseases. I mean, we're, we're, get, we're getting closer to gaining somewhat of an understanding, but it's quite complicated Preeclampsia is, you know, high blood pressure that develops after 20 weeks of pregnancy uh, in a patient without prior high blood pressure. It can be associated, you know, it can be just blood pressure alone, which is hypertensive disorder of pregnancy or gestational hypertension. It can be associated with certain abnormalities in the urine and the blood, things like that. It has a lot of possible underlying causes. So it can be related to somebody's genetics. So we know that family history is really important. Even if a patient's partner had a other partner who had preeclampsia, they're at a higher risk, right? <laughs> there are some chromosomal uh, disorders that can put somebody at a high risk for developing preeclampsia. Um, we know people having uh, the first baby are at a higher risk. People with di- underlying diabetes or mul- like twins or triplets are, are at a higher risk. So lots of... First baby is yeah. at a higher risk? Yeah. Really? Meloparity. Women who are 40 and above are at a higher risk. So a whole bunch of different factors. And it does seem that probably there's a bit of a difference in 
the underlying etiology, if they develop it early and severe, like less than 34 weeks, or they develop it closer to term. And that's sort of becoming evident over the last few years. In general, there's a thought that this has involved sort of abnormal placentation, the, the, the placenta implanting abnormally very early in the pregnancy and the manifestations don't really occur till later. There's um, a lot of research being done on looking at different markers called SFLID and placental growth factor that can be measured, that can be somewhat predictive of preeclampsia. Um, the, in the UK, they've done a lot of work where um, they do a test at like 11 to 12 weeks and they're measuring the mother's blood pressure. They take a history, they um, send off these markers as S-flip, placental growth factor. It's a, it's a whole combination and it can be very predictive of that early onset preeclampsia. And then they did a huge trial, a randomized trial of um, 150 milligram dose of, of aspirin versus placebo and showed a significant reduction in that early onset preeclampsia. So it's, it's very specific for that. They also measured blood flow in the uterine arteries, the arteries that, that flow uh, to the uterus. So that's you know very compelling for early onset. It, it didn't, the, the aspirin didn't have that same effect for the later onset of preeclampsia. So likely a slightly different etiology that the aspirin is tar targeting that early onset. So um, in, the, in the US right now, we don't have that test available. We don't have that S-split marker, but um, there are um, research that is being done even measuring it at 20 weeks as marker along with um, a measuring a different, some other markers. So a lot of research that's being done on it, but I think people should know, like if you're at risk for it, you know, have the discussion. There are patients that need to be on a baby aspirin here in the US. We use an 81 milligram dose of baby aspirin who should be on it from 12 weeks onward um, or even 16 weeks is okay to start it. So um, the um, American College of OBGYN has a specific criteria. You know, you have to have one of the um, more severe risk factors or two of the moderate risk factors and you should be on baby aspirin. We'll tell patients who are really at high risk, we'll tell them to monitor the blood pressure at home after 24 weeks and things like that. So there are things that you can do to help prevent it or delay the onset or identify it early. And that can improve outcomes. Is it as simple as just monitoring the blood pressure? And because what I'm hearing is preeclampsia means high blood pressure. So I mean, is it as simple as honestly, like not to <laughs> make light of it is you can go to the CVS and stick your arm in the thing and measure your blood pressure if you don't have a monitor at home. And if it's high, you can go to your doctor. Is it that simple to be aware of it? Or is there more? So preeclampsia generally doesn't occur before 22 to 24 weeks. You know, it'd be very rare. So it's something that usually occurs after that time. So I wouldn't tell just a low risk patient without risk factors to go ahead and, and, and monitor their blood pressure. But um, if you are at a high risk for it, I, you know, I would suggest monitoring it because you might be able to pick it up you know, earlier and so get that closer surveillance before you present with like very severe disease, you know? Okay. And yeah, so, um, so it's, it's, it's not that just monitoring is going to prevent it from happening. It's going to identify it. But there seems to be some things like aspirin 
that um, is being developed. And then other, some other medications as well that people are working on. Um, there's a, a lot of research being done looking at statins, typically used for to lower cholesterol, but there's biological basis why statins may be useful to help reduce um, preeclampsia as well. So that's an area of, of, of research. So a lot of things that are you know, moving forward, I think that we're gonna be seeing like already in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of development in this area okay. um, where for a long time before then there was nothing. And um, I think the next, you know, 10 years will, um, we'll, we're going to make a lot of progress. Wow. Interesting. You know, Dr. Braverman had me on um, anoxaparin sodium and uh, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on that. And again, like one other thing that I want everyone to, to hear, and I talk about this in some of the episodes is um, clinical trials are designed for an endpoint, sometimes secondary endpoints. And so the design of the study, what you're looking at, who the patient population is, as you alluded to earlier, makes such a difference in determining what the outcomes are. And then, you know, to do a clinical trial requires funding, and then you have to write papers and publish. It's a lot of effort. And so, you know, it's really interesting. You have um, those who notice things in their own practice. And then there's the clinical trials and just trying to make sense of all of this because of all the things that rightly so need to be in place to make sure we're safely giving people guidelines. But yeah, so I just wanted to at least call that out, but I'm curious on, on your thoughts with the anoxaparin sodium, because I know that was the, the point where the, the two of you disagreed on how long I should be on it. And so I'm an end of one guy. So sorry, I just, I did want to ask Dr. Stone because I'm so curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, ha it, it hasn't really been shown to, to reduce preeclampsia. So this is a blood thinner. So, you know, um, certain patients that have like a history of a blood clot or might have recurrent miscarriages with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, these antibodies that can cause clotting. Um, maybe, you know, for some patients who had a stillbirth or a very, very small baby and placenta shows areas of thrombosis and infarct, things like that. There is a whole world of reproductive immunology that Dr. Braverman was very involved with, where they, um, for different conditions and often either problems with uh, in, implantation from IVF or recurrent miscarriage, where they use combination of Lovenox, progesterone, steroids, and we use IVIG. It's a whole other field and a very con area of controversy. All right, so we have a couple more to cover. I know we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, one is the perinatal transmission of HIV and then PPH. Which one do you think would be the, the best to cover? I don't know if we can cover both of them quickly in an uh, maybe, optimized may way. Yeah, maybe PPH, because I feel like it's more, like like you said to me, it's one of the most common causes of, of maternal um, death, right? Okay. So it's hard, you know, I thought about it and I thought about, well, you know, this is about prevention, right? So how, what are we going to tell people? So I think one of the things to, um, to realize is like, are you at risk for a postpartum hemorrhage, right? Okay. So, and then be prepared, you know, how, how to be prepared for it. So for example, if you are pregnant with triplets and, you know, there's about a 10% chance that you're going to need a blood transfusion, that delivery, because the uterus is so over distended, it's hard for it to contract down. So having the conversation, what are going to be the plans? Are there medications in the room to help the uterus contract down? S things like that. Or patients who have had multiple cesarean deliveries, 
then are at a higher risk for the placenta to grow into the uterus itself, especially if they've had three C-sections and then they're pregnant with a placenta that's over the scar, you know, that, that's a much bigger risk factor. So these are things that you can be prepared for and, and have the doctors have a multidisciplinary approach to taking care of these patients. So you meet, you bring in the obstetrician, the maternal fetal medicine specialist, maybe the surgical specialist, some places the GYN oncologists who are excellent surgeons are involved, the anesthesia team, the nursing team, um, everybody that gets involved to form the best plan to take care of this patient. We even have the blood bank involved so that they know there might be a massive transfusion. We need to have all that blood ready and products. So this planning can help save lives, right? So identifying patients at risk and then planning it ahead and having best practices in place to try to help reduce that. So I look at Serena Williams and she, you know, she's someone who's quite well-known and was quite vocal about what happened with her. I mean, she's healthy. <laughs> she's a tennis star. Like what could have happened in her situation? I'm just curious. Cause like some of the risk factors you named, you know, she didn't have those obvious ones. So like what, what would have caused it with her? So I, you know, to, to be honest with you, I don't know her whole medical story. I think it was a pulmonary embolus that she had. Ah, right? I okay. think so three big causes of maternal death, right? Postpartum hemorrhage, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and a venous thromboembolism. Those are oh, the- you're right. Cause she couldn't, it was in her lung, right? Cause yes. she couldn't breathe. That's what it was. You're right. You're yeah. right. Okay. So, you know, I, I think in her case, people were just, I don't know why they, they weren't taking her seriously, but her inability to, you know, like to breathe or something. So um, this can happen. It's really um, hard, hard to prevent. Um, I don't know. It's more common after cesarean section. There's a lot of controversy on some people are on the side of giving Lovenox, for example, uh, to patients who are at high risk for um, a thromboembolic event after delivery, especially after a C-section, like um, at the, they're not so mobile or they're obese or things like that. Then there are people who say, you know what, it doesn't usually occur within such a short time period. It can occur, you know, a month out. So, you know, we don't, we don't really use that. And there is a concern for bleeding after a C-section. So it's controversial and different, um, different people advocate for different use, you know, uses, but I think a very important always is listening to the patient. Patients sometimes know like, this is just not right. I like, we, we always need to take patients very seriously in their complaints or their concerns and address those with open mind and, and take their, you know, listen to them and take their concerns very seriously. So the last question I always like to ask is what is your greatest hope for women's health? Besides my world in obstetrics, right? You hear a lot about women not being taken who have cardiac complaints, right? That shortens of breath, chest pain, because we don't typically think of women as having heart attacks. So the, the need again to listen to to women and their complaints and, and taking them quite seriously. And we need to we need to get better. And I think there's so many efforts underway to help with that. I'm gonna tell you there's a few themes for me that are really important. I think reproductive justice is incredibly important that we have to make sure that we, that women continue to have choice in in this. And I'm sorry if I'm being political about it, but like, that's the way I feel like we need, we need to have choice and 
especially, you know, for people who have underlying conditions that don't have access, that's a huge problem. You know, that can increase their risk of dying um, and then reducing the disparities that we see, you know, in um, racial disparities, ethnic disparities. It's really, you know, important. So I think addressing all these issues, making sure women stay safe and healthy. I mean, pregnancy is, you know, supposed to be <laughs> supposed to end in a good result. It's not always going to, and we can't prevent everything from happening, but we can make it as healthy process as possible. Appreciate this. And, you know, I think being proactive is important. And I know a lot of us like to go on Dr. Google, and I certainly don't want the women listening to be paranoid and having to research all of this stuff. But I, I feel like the way you presented this, it's, you know, basic risk factors, things to be aware of and ways to be proactive. And, and you know, the way you ended with some of the needs that are still there and your greatest hope, I think is, is just a, a great way to close it. And I appreciate your expertise, your time and all that you're doing for, for women and we need it. So thank yeah. you.